Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. All right, Dean Gladstone, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? Mate, Brett Hawk, honoured to um, be here chatting to you after so long. It's, it's been a while, mate. Now, we grew up together. I don't have the, the best of memories. Do you have any memories of us uh, being together growing up, that kind of thing? Well, I, you're a little bit older than me, so mm. as, a, as a younger kid at the pool, I used to look up to you, you know. You were probably the coolest dude there, um, mm. super fit looking. Um, you know, sprinters were always good, you know, they seemed to be able to do less and achieve more. And it was sort of like my goal, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. We grew up in Maroubra together. It's a, it's a suburb of, um, of, of Sydney. You know, most, a lot of my listeners are from the US, so they don't really know where these areas are, but I do have a lot of listeners in Australia. And uh, so we did grow up together. Now I was, I was a, a swimmer at the time. What school did you go to? I was at Maris College at Pagewood. Pagewood, okay. Now, what was your intention when you were a kid? Did you did you have any aspirations of going to the Olympics at any point in time, or did you just – why were you swimming? Yeah, um, so I was hospitalised with asthma uh-huh. when I was nine. Um, we were swimming before that. I remember getting a pool vaguely when I was four. I can, it's one of my earliest memories. I remember the bulldozer coming over the back fence, and so we had to go swimming training. And I used to love it, you know. We had such a good little group of friends, you know, guys that I'm still close to and people that I still talk to. But, um, yeah, you know, I used to struggle a little bit with it. And when I stopped swimming, I got asthma. Mm. Um, So I knew early on and it sort of led me down to the path where I'm still very much connected to that and and grateful for having asthma because it's it's sort of given me a career and and so much insight to, to what I do now. Yeah, I'm very similar, man. I grew up with asthma too, and it's the reason why I started swimming. Um, you know, there were a couple of workouts that I'm sure you can remember that we did that probably gave us asthma at the time. We were doing some work back then, mate. Um, so, but but you were always kind of heavily involved in the surf lifesaving and and that side of things. Was there ever a moment where you felt like you you wanted to to be a pool swimmer, or was it always the surf lifesaving? Yeah, so when, um, so my sister was the more talented athlete. Um, you probably might, might have trained with Belinda a little bit more. Yep, yep. Um, and she was, you know, she was potential Olympics, but like many young swimmers, um, she was burnt out by the time she was um, a teenager. She had two shoulder reconstructions by the time she was 16. And I remember watching the Commonwealth Games um, and, and looking at Belinda's times and they were right up there. With the, with the top people. But, yeah, I wasn't quite at that level. When I was 18, I had a national ranking of two in the 400 freestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a young guy called Ian Thorpe who was three or four years younger, going about 10 or 15 seconds faster than that. <laughs> and Grant Hackett as well, who, who, who I used to race in the surf. Um, you know, there was Kai Hurst and there was, there was just too much, too much talent for me. So I ended up swimming in the surf. And I found that more social and more competitive mm-hmm. and, um, and super enjoyable. When did you go into the, the lifeguarding? Because we're going to talk about this in a minute. You, you've kind of 
um, appeared on a show that's made you very famous now called Bondi Rescue. And we'll, go, we'll talk about that. But when did the, the lifeguarding come into your life? Yes, uh, you know, I struggled at school. So there, was, there wasn't too much um, opportunity there. But, um, yeah, I used to look at the lifeguards and, and think that looked super cool. And I remember seeing them do a medical emergency one day and my mum's a nurse. And she actually explained to me what they were doing. They brought this guy back to life down at Maroubra. Mm. And, um, yeah, it just seemed it seemed logical to try and do something that I was good at and, mm. uh, and be able to help people. So, yeah, I ended up starting the lifeguards about 20 years ago. So, yeah, when I was 21 or 22. And, um, yeah, it's just been such a journey. And then sort of Bondi Rescue started. They started filming us five or six years after that. Um, and, you know, this is before reality TV and all that sort of stuff. So um, it wasn't something that I aspired to, to be on TV. It's not like I applied. Mm-hmm. Um, Bondi Rescue is more of a documentary as opposed to some of these reality TV with contestants and stuff. So, yeah, it's a little bit different. Well, listen, what's the process of becoming a, a lifeguard on Sydney beaches? Because they're, they're crazy. They're, they're packed all the time. Um, what's the process of actually going through and becoming a lifeguard? Yeah, it's that's a, that's a, a really good question. So the, the qualifications aren't that, um, aren't that hard to get. But to have the ability to do it, it's sort of, you know, how long is a piece of string? Like growing up around the ocean and, and in the surf, as you did, you know, that would be much easier for you to be ad- adapt to be a lifeguard. Whereas someone who hasn't grown up like that in and out of the surf, surfing, bodyboarding, surf club stuff, it's just so much harder to learn. So for me, it it was sort of a natural progression. It was, you know, as kids, we spent so much time at the beach, in and out of the surf, in the surf clubs. Um, Yeah, it it wasn't too hard to adjust. Um, Surfers are in the water so much. They know what the waves are doing and and that's how you rescue people, basically. They They don't know what the waves are doing and they get in the wrong spot. And, uh, and they need help. Yeah. Well, but I mean, the Bondi uh, lifeguards are a little bit tougher. It's almost like, um, you know, uh, going through um, Navy SEALs or something like that. There's a selection process, right? You've got to be pretty good uh, at, at what you do, right? Yeah, it's, well, it's, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I don't want to say that that we're the best lifeguards, but we just, we're the best lifeguards are working at Bondi because we've always worked there. Um, well, I was chatting with one of my mates, Harry's the other day, and he's been a lifeguard for 24, 25 years. And we were going through it. We, we reckon that we've done about 5,000 rescues each. Mm. And we're curious to, to speak to anyone else in Australia. And it's probably, there, there may not be anyone else in Australia that has done as many rescues as us. And it, it's a really interesting conversation. And it's not because I'm the best lifeguard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my fitness is good. You know, Harry's and I in the fitness tests, we're, we're up the front. Um, it's, it's the longevity and the location. But it's, you know, it's mentally tough working uh, as, a, as a lifeguard at Bondi more than, more than the physical bit. It's, it's dealing with the stress. Well, talk to me about that. What what kind of stresses are you facing as a lifeguard at Bondo Beach? Well, you know, there's no greater stress than having someone's life in your hands. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, we deal with life and death. 
So what, what, what kind of situations are, are you faced with? I mean, I'm sure you've got some incredible stories, yeah. but just in general right now, what are the most common um, rescues that you make? And then, and then how, how deep do they go? Yeah, so most of our rescues aren't too hard. You know, there's a photo of Bondo Beach behind me. And when people get into trouble in a rip or a current, um, basically the, the ocean is taking them out to sea. Mm. And instead of swimming across with the ocean, they swim in against the ocean. Mm. And they quickly get tired and they panic and they need to be rescued. Now, most of the time, this isn't too far from the shore. It's quite safe and easy for a lifeguard to go out and get them. Mm-hmm. The problem is when you get 30, 40, maybe 50,000 people on the beach, multiple rescues going on at once, um, spinal injury, you've got perverts taking photos, you've, you, you name it, it's, it's happening all at once. And bag thieves, and it's then trying to control multiple things at once and trying to have the staff to do so. Mm. So it's when the shit hits the fan and two or three things happen at once and we get stressed and you may miss something, you're on the back foot. And um, it, yeah, life just get it just gets too hard to control. It just gets out of control, literally. And something, if something slips, we're in trouble. So you have days where there's 50,000 people on Bondi Beach. Yeah, so our craziest days, the, the summer over here is, is the opposite to America. So mm. summer is Christmas, New Year's Day. Um, we have a public holiday in Australia, Australia Day. And I guess not as much so now, but 10 years ago, like people used to just get really drunk on those days Mm. and alcohol does not bring out the best in people Mm -hmm. and let alone it doesn't aid their decision-making at all. So people (laughs) are getting drunk, doing stupid shit and literally, you know, it's a cause of death. Like people Mm. can put themselves in a position where they're, they could die from, from stupid behaviour. And it's young males um, exhibiting this behaviour the most. And it's, um, yeah, it certainly puts the pressure on us. Well, Mike, uh, give me a couple of stories, uh, if you don't mind, you know, some, some experiences that you've had um, that kind of stick out in your memory of, of rescues or events that you've had at Bondi Beach that, um, you know, have stayed with you. Yeah, I, I wish I wrote all of these down, but there was... There was one day that I remember there was like 30,000 people on the beach and it was hot and we could see this big southerly change coming in. So when the weather changes here in Sydney, generally the bad weather comes from the south. Mm -hmm. And it's like the rest of the beach is unaware. When you're a lifeguard, you're really aware of these things, you know, the, the weather, the surf. And we can just see it coming in and we know we're going to get a nice, easy afternoon. And it's, it's good because you've done a bit of work in the morning. And then if everyone leaves, you can just sort of sit back, tell some stories, have some food and, and chill out. And this, it turned into this big electrical storm and it cleared the beach. There was umbrellas flying and it went from 25, 30,000 on the beach to the beach being pretty much empty. And this hectic electrical storm, thunder and lightning was going off. And these three guys were walking up the beach and it's like, oh, shit. And just boom, like one guy got struck by lightning pretty much 50 metres in front of me. Oh, I, He was dead. I went down and grabbed him and we, we, we had a buggy back then and, and two of us chucked him on the buggy and we brought him underneath the lifeguard tower and we had an old blue sit-up mat down there. You probably would have remembered them from the gym back in, back in the day. Anyway, we just literally chucked this guy on the mat and his name was Colin. 
And he was a doctor and his two mates were doctors. And so we're trying to, you know, we work best as a team without people around telling us what to do. And they're trying to move us out of the way because they're doctors, right? They want to do their thing and, and we want to do our thing. And there was a little bit of argy-bargy and eventually they sort of cleared out. And once they realised we knew what we were doing, they, they let us go for it. Um, so we put the automatic defibrillator on there, which is those things that people see in hospital, they go, boom. Mm. Uh, we've got automatic ones and we had that on him and we just sort of did CPR for about 15, 20 minutes. And it, and it took quite a while to the ambulance come, but eventually we got this guy back. Oh, his mates going, come on, Colin, you know, it, it gives me goosebumps to, to even talk about it. But, um, you know, if you could bottle that feeling of bringing someone back to life, like it would be the best wow. drug on it. Wow. That's incredible. Um, now, did you get to meet him uh, after the fact? Yeah, he come back in a wheelchair about six months later. Um, he was, you know, he was still, his circuits were pretty much fried, but he was improving day by day and he was going back to Ireland. Mm, wow. What a story, man. That does yeah. give me chills. Jeez. Um, what about shark attacks? Do you, you guys get any shark attacks at Bondi? We had, there was a shark attack in 2014. It was on Valentine's day and it happened just after we finished work. So we didn't deal with that. And there was a, a shark attack in Sydney Harbor the day before. And uh, there hasn't been too much since. So fortunately we're not dealing um, with, with shark attacks, but yeah, that was the last shark attack at Bondi and non-fatal God lost his arm. And it was, you know, I think it was a little bit of a case of mistaken identity. Um, a little juvenile, great white just took a nibble of his arm. And he ended up losing the arm, but, um, yeah, wow. he survived. And, um, there was some quick thinkers on the scene that put a tourniquet on his arm and the paramedics arrived pretty quickly. And yeah, he's, um, he's a pretty lucky guy. Mate, you must have seen some crazy stuff. You must be pretty pretty okay with blood, the sight of blood. You all right with that? Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I've seen all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Um, yeah, dealing with, yeah, the skateboard park has some brutal, brutal injuries. I've seen some nasty surfboard chops. And, mm. um, yeah, I guess you, you've got to deal with it to, to be a lifeguard. Sometimes I uh, take some photos, you know, ask the people when they're injured, can I take a quick photo? Because generally they want to see afterwards. When they've uh, when they've calmed down and when they feel okay, as a lifeguard, how much responsibility do you have to that person? Uh, obviously, you're not a medical doctor, and and I'm I'm assuming that you guys call the ambulance and, and wait for them. But like, how much responsibility do you assume um, before all that happens? Yeah, so we have total responsibility. Lifeguards run the beach. We're we're in charge. It's, it's our it's our place, and you know. Whilst I, I did talk about doctors before, um, you know, while we're doing, doing CPR, it's, it's, it's our place, it's our location, it's our equipment. Mm. We, we don't want to step back and, and hand it over. Um, so, yeah, we, we take total responsibility. And, you know, someone can bleed out and die. It's, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of ways where people can, can struggle, even if someone swallows water. They can have secondary drowning, so it's vitally important. Important, like someone in a rip can can drop die, you know, six days a week after after they get rescued. So mm. even in cases like that, that's probably more important 
because it, it's trying to urge them to to go and get checked out when they're not um, too too injured. Yeah. Well, it, it's nice to have those ones that you bring back. Do you have moments uh, or um, incidents where you've just uh, feel like you just you couldn't do anything? You're helpless, or um, or a, you know one just got away from you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been it's been sort of I've had worked with two two drownings over the years and it's 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 tragic. Um, I've I've fortunately picked up more suicide bodies, um, but I, I see those two as different. Um, I when someone commits suicide and this conversation's not not really going in a, in a happy place, but it's you know I guess. In Australia, we talk about suicide more and more these days. Up to mm. 4,000 Australians kill themselves every year. So it's people know people that have killed themselves. So we pick up lots of bodies and we deal with people that have jumped off cliffs and we try and bring them back to life. But it's people that go to the beach and um, with their family, for instance, that, that don't make it home. They're the really mm. concerning ones for me. Yeah. Um, if someone's chosen to take their own life, then that's that's different, and I've dealt with a lot of that. But yeah, there's been a couple of occasions where people have been at the beach, and they've been young males, non-English speaking background. They're just not familiar with the ocean, and they uh, they've never come back. And wow. it's yeah, it, as a lifeguard, it, that's that sort of thing haunts you. Yeah, because you play it over and over in your head, thinking, could I have done something different? Was could I have set the beach up different? You know, should I have seen that? And it's 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 hard. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate you going into that. I know that's tough to talk about. Um, what about this iconic photo behind you? Do you guys have jurisdiction over the pool itself here? No, we don't. We don't work at the pool. Actually, I went and swam a couple of k yesterday. It's such a beautiful pool. The um, the the it's painted white and it just gives the most blue color. I guess you can see a little bit of it in the photo. Yeah. And, um, you know, the guys at the icebergs, they call us up sometimes because the southern end of Bondi is where we do a lot of our uh, rescues. So they'll often call us and say, listen, there's someone just off the pool. Stop. Can you can you come and grab them? Oh. Um, and they're really good. They let us go and, and, and train up there for, for nothing. So, nice. yeah, we've got a good relationship with those guys. Um, you know, we're supported by the Surf Life Savers as well. A lot of the local surfers, like they hold people up in, in rips till we get out there. So, mm. yeah, there's even some of the locals that live up in the buildings, you know, everyone sort of rings us and, and helps us. So it's, it's teamwork that makes the dream work. Well, talk to us about Bondi Rescue, the show itself. How did it uh, come about? And then, um, you know, talk to us where it's at today. Yeah, so Bondi Rescue started in 2005, I think, and one of the one of the lifeguards at the time, a casual guy, he was involved in in making some TV. And when I started, you know, there was just because of the proximity to the city, it's the busiest beach in Australia. Um, it's five k's away from the CBD. You can see Sydney Harbour Bridge from from not too far away with a bit of elevation. Um, so it's just it's just in the middle of the busiest city in Australia. And on a summer's day, everyone goes to Bondi and, you know, people get drunk and want to see the sunrise at Bondi. So it's just this diverse range of cultures just bubbling together. And, yeah, it just, it just erupts when there's, when there's sunshine. Everyone wants a little piece of the sand and it just gets crazy busy. And, 
crazy stuff tends to tends to follow it. <laughs> and so then they decided to film this, and then the show was it was it kind of the idea of maybe being a pilot, and then you know now it's gone on for what you I think you said fifteen years now, right? Yeah, in two thousand and three or two thousand and four, we had this. Uh, we we bought fourteen or fifteen people back to life um, in a whole range of situations, and so it you know for the paramedics or someone else, if someone has a heart attack or something, the likelihood of getting them back isn't that great. And so for us to um, whether it was good luck or good management, hopefully it was a bit of both. Um, for us to have this success rate of bringing people back to life was was unheard of. And it, it just gathered momentum. There was, you know, weird and wonderful things happening. The guy getting struck by lightning was one of them. There was another girl that we resuscitated, brought back to life, they induced her into a coma. And, you know, there was all these success stories and they're like, we could make a TV show out of this. <laughs> And um, yeah, it just sort of it just sort of happened, and it was it was the guy Ben Davies that produced the show. He had the know-how to do it. It was talked about before. Um, it was always talked about. I remember working on Christmas days when it was wild, and there was drunk girls trying to kiss me, and it was it was just like <laughs> it was just everything you could imagine. It was just yeah. I, I can't even describe it. But um, <laughs> alcohol's not not allowed on the beach anymore. So those wild days. Um, don't happen like they used to. So the show itself, how, why has it gone on for so long? You think? Yeah, I, I don't, it's an iconic piece of Australia. So Baywatch, which everyone would be familiar with, was the most popular show in the world. Hmm. Um, so there's a little essence of of Baywatch in it, but it's it's also reality TV, which is which has become super popular. Like Bondi Rescue sort of started before all of that, and um, I guess it's character driven, you know, there's a couple of characters down there and we had a laugh and, and they sort of showed us being real. Um, they showed us making mistakes. They showed us swearing. They showed us having fun. And it, it tends to be, you know, particularly from the kids that I've spoke to, they learn more from watching us have fun, um, play up, um, swear and, and, and make mistakes while saving people than, than your traditional, oh, don't do this, do this, you've got to do this, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it seems the education in it seems to be really effective because it's a little bit more fun and a little bit more, a little bit more sexy maybe, who knows? But it, it seems to be um, a really good message, a really good mix of education. There's some bronze bodies, there's some um there's some fun and there's some rescues is there anything off limits is there anything that they, they're not allowed to put in the show well it's 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 got to be filmed so i've done some brilliant rescues over the years that, that haven't been filmed and mm. you know i've had a cameraman apologize to me um <laughs> so but yeah i, I guess we, you want to keep it on topic but uh you know we had we, we had snoop dog playing new year's eve um, at Bondi once, uh, you know, Snoop was on there, Borat, Paris Hilton, um, <laughs> anything at, at Bondi that they can tie into a story with the lifeguards um, that comes on the show. You know, we, we've tackled death on, on the show um, and it's, you know, it's, it's what happens as a lifeguard. So as, as I mentioned before, the show's a documentary, essentially, uh, observational documentary, they call it. And so they're observing us and, and filming us. So we don't work for the film crew. 
they just film us doing their thing. So if they think they can tie something in to what we're doing, they'll, they'll maybe recreate that a little bit to tell the story a little bit better. Mm. But all in all, the story is um, what, what happens. No, so you don't make any extra money from this? It's an interesting one, but, but no, we, we don't really make any extra money from it, which is quite frustrating. Mm. But for me and the other guys, it's given us a profile where sure. we're able to make money from that profile. Yeah. Um, yeah, we work twice as hard for half as much. But yeah, it's, you know, I, I don't regret it at all. Um, it's open doors for me. I've been down at the Logies in Australia. You know, I've met so many people. It's been um, a beautiful experience, which still seems to be going year after year. And, I, you know, I'm so grateful for, you know, we get stories from people that have pulled their kids out of the pool face down and, and, and seen us doing resus on Bondi Rescue and, and they've brought their kids back to life. And when someone mm. sends you a letter or an email or a phone call like that, Mm. it just can't it just makes you happy wow yeah i bet jeez what an impact you, you have buy that sort of stuff so no. yeah so no. you know i've um i i learned early on that helping people is where it's at and what makes you happy so um yeah it's and now i've transitioned my career's sort of moved across into breath work and, and health coaching and personal training but there's an element of helping people in all those, all those careers. And, and, I, and I still lifeguard, I still get to rescue people and I hope to be able to do it till I'm 60, um, body, body going well. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm super stoked to be able to help people. That's awesome, man. Well, you answered a couple of extra questions there for me, so that's great. But you transitioned a little bit into the breath work. Now, uh, you know, I know you're heavily into this uh, intermittent hypoxic training. I believe it's called uh, the Wim Hof Method. Um, talk to me about this and how did it come about and how, why, how are you now kind of coaching and teaching this? How do we relate it to swimming? Yeah, well, I, I touched on earlier that I was an asthmatic and you're an asthmatic. A lot of people um, get sent swimming training when they're asthmatics. Mm -hmm. And so I knew early on I had this connection with the breath and, and how I feel and perform. And then, so I always had to swim and I'm grateful for that. It gave me a, a job and a career. But when you swim, you breathe through the mouth and um, that's not really ideal in, in a functional breathing sense, although you can't swim and breathe through the nose. But um, we did hypoxic training as kids. Um, so I, and I knew that, that that helped my fitness. So I just had this connection. I ended up um, doing yoga and I found I could regulate my breathing through yoga without going swimming training. Because once I stopped swimming training, um, I literally used to struggle to run around the block. Mm. Whereas where I'm swimming training, I could run 10 Ks quite easy or mm -hmm. 10 miles even. Yeah. Um, well, not to, I'm getting a little bit older now. So running 10 miles is, is not my favorite <laughs> thing to do. But yeah, so it was discovering yoga and regulating the breath through yoga. And then Wim Hof's a yogi. And then I started doing this technique so Wim, he's a bit of a crazy Dutchman. Um, he's in his 60s now and he's broken 25 world records. And so what he's famous for is he can influence the body um, on a greater level than what other people can do. So he broke a world record where he's in an ice bath for two hours. Mm. So he can thermoregulate or control his body's temperatures where he can survive 
that sort of um, that sort of stress, basically. Wow. Um, what really put him on the map is in 2011 they injected him with an endotoxin, and he was able to use his method um, of breathing, which is a super ventilation method, to to influence his immune system and wow. basically not get sick. Mm. So when they inject people with the flu, they they get a headache, they get a temperature. They suffer from it. When they injected him with it, he did his technique and he really minimised any of that damage. So it proved that he was one of the first ones to prove that he could influence his immune system and that wow. made him quite famous. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, so when That's I started insane. practising the Wim Hof method, I didn't get sick or I got sick less. So it's, it's, it's a winner. So it's combined the breathing technique with going in the cold. So how long does it take you to learn this method and, and kind of um, master it in a way? Yeah, so the beauty about Wim Hof's method is it's super simple. You're just breathing in and out quite deeply and you uh, superventilate, which is controlled hyperventilation, and you blow out a lot of carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide is actually what gives us the inclination to breathe. So people... And it changes the blood flow to the brain. It feels really nice. Mm. And so people get sort of, I guess, proud of themselves that they can hold their breath for a period of time. But this, this super ventilation, this, this intense breathing causes a little bit of stress on the body. And then when you hold your breath, you actually go into the rest and digest, the, the relaxation response. And you just sort of hold your breath and, and you bliss out. So people that struggle with stress, um, taking them in and out of these two responses anecdotally seems to be really good for helping them deal with their own stress in mm. modern day life because mm. so much of our modern day life, we're in that fight or flight response where we're stressed, we're anxious, and we're, we're just getting stuck there. So the Wim Hof method seems to take people in and out of, in and out of a stress response and helps them deal with stress better in, my, mm. in than what I my best understanding or description of it. Yeah. Oh, that, that's very cool. So I'm into high performance swimming, you know, Olympic swimming, yep. um, that type of level of swimming and performance. So how could we best utilize this as um, Olympic athletes? What do you think they, the benefits of this could be for them? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I love Wim Hof, but that sort of led me into studying, studying functional breathing as well. Okay. Um, which is which I is just as important. The Wim Hof method just gives you energy. Mm -hmm. um, there's some autoimmune benefits. Okay. I'll send you through some bits and pieces. But basically, when we breathe, when we breathe through the nose, mm -hmm. it filters the air. So which which makes it ideal for our lungs. So you know, coronavirus topical at the moment. Don't want to get too far into it, but someone with the flu, if we're next to them and we're breathing in through the mouth, the bacteria or the toxins are going to go into our body and into our lungs. Mm. And we're more likely to get sick. Whereas mm. if we breathe, if we breathe through the mouth, if we breathe through the nose, there's little hairs in our nose called cilia and they filter the air. There's something else released in the nose called nitric oxide, nasal nitric oxide, and that's a vasodilator. So that opens up our airways and our blood vessels. And it's also a natural antiseptic. So if we breathe in through the nose more, we're less likely to get sick. If we breathe in through the nose more, we're, we're, we're more likely to sleep better at night. Um, it helps recovery. It helps 
the way we utilize fat as a fuel source. So it's more likely to keep us in a more aerobic system as opposed to getting us in an anaerobic response. And yeah, the way we breathe is very much linked to our nervous system. So, you know, your athletes, we, you would want to get them as calm as possible. So mm-hmm. some slow nasal breathing at night may help them get to sleep better. They sleep better. They recover better. They get up. They train harder the next day. Love it, mate. That's awesome. Jeez. Uh, well, for someone that wasn't very good in school, you just explained that very well, mate, like you're an expert in, and I, I'm sold. I'm, I'm into it. But what about in terms of um, the, the, what they talk about in terms of breathing from the chest or the, or the stomach or the diaphragm? Talk to me about those different areas. Yeah, I've got one for you right now. You, you take a big breath in through your mouth. Take a huge breath in through your mouth. Okay. All right, now take a big breath in through your nose. Totally different. So I took the, bre- the the mouth from here and the nose from the stomach. Yeah. So when we breathe through the nose, it innovates the di- diaphragm. So there's nerves that connect breathing through the nose and the diaphragm. And the exchange of oxygen and CO2 happens in the lower lobes of the lungs. So there's more blood lower down here than there is up here. And as you just described, breathing through the mouth takes you up to, takes you up to there. Mm-hmm. Wow. So basically you're trying to retrain yourself to get away from short breath, uh, breathing through the mouth and chest to longer prolonged breathing through the nose and stomach or diaphragm, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's something called the Bohr effect and that was discovered in 1903 or 1904. And it's got to do with the relationship between oxygen and CO2 in the blood. And when we breathe quickly and through the mouth, we actually get more oxygen in. And this is not necessarily always a good thing. When we breathe through the nose, we get a little bit less oxygen in but it improves the uh, uptake of oxygen in the blood because there's more CO2 present. So we need CO2 present in the blood for that exchange of gases to occur. Mm-hmm. And it does get quite complex, but what it basically means is too much breathing is not necessarily your friend. So less, less is more. So we breathe in 21% oxygen and we breathe out 16% oxygen. So we don't need heaps and heaps of oxygen, we, we need to utilize it better in the body. And having CO2 present in the blood um, helps us do that. So if, if we can improve, if an athlete can improve their body's ability to tolerate CO2, their fitness will improve. So I've been working with people on this at a performance level, and it's been, the results have been really impressive. Oh, I love it, mate. I love it. How, how, how much time and effort, how long would a course like this take somebody if they were to dedicate themselves to it? To teach it or just to understand it? To understand it. Mate, yeah. It's, it's, so I run, a, I've got an online course which I've put out for people where I touch on a little bit of yoga, a little bit of Wim Hof, a little bit of this functional breathing, and, and I've put it all together in an online course for people. And it's, mm. it's just, there's some techniques that really help. Um, so for me, I was mouth breathing at night. Yep. So I take my mouth up at night from here to here and it's increasingly common. And what that does, it just reminds me to habitually breathe through the nose. What, what's so, the website, mate? Talk to us about that. Yeah, um, I've got a website, dinogladstone.com. Um, and so I run a little, I run workshops called Power of the Breath. 
uh-huh. um, where I, I teach people breathing techniques. And then Wim Hof style, I get them in an ice bath at the end of the workshop. Is this so exclusively for people that live in Australia or do you do it worldwide? I, I've run online courses and mm-hmm. hence the reason why I've got an online um, course that people can buy anytime, anywhere, basically. But I, I had some guys from the States and, and Canada in my last course and they were getting up at four in the morning mm-hmm. to meet with us on a Monday night. And I'm like, oh, there's got to be a better way. I've just got to put <laughs> all online for these guys to access nice. but yeah it's it's simple techniques um combining combining functional breathing and the latest science to to basically tell us what yogis and 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 people we've already known but it's just it's just reminding us about these simple techniques assessing them seeing where you're at and, and noticing whether your performance improves and for me it has been it's been huge i struggled at school you know i I taught myself the alphabet after I left school. Like I missed that stuff at school. And, um, you know, I literally feel smarter now than I, I ever have been. And it's from breathing better and eating better and, and doing all the little things. I love it, mate. Well, this is why I wanted to get you on the show today. Cause I'm always looking for the edge. We're always looking for something, um, that we can learn about the body that's that we can, that can control it, you know, so, so that we can get better performance. Um, we're looking for real ways instead of, you know, uh, these, these fake ways of making performance come to you really quickly. You know, it's like, how do you work for performance? And this is a a great way to do it. Um, I love it, mate. Uh, Yes. Are you guys doing anything? Is there any breath focus, breath awareness? Is there... Not, not to this extent. No, no. I mean, we do some hypoxic stuff and that's kind of an, another question for you is like, how dangerous is hypoxic work if you don't fully understand it? Yeah. So there is some dangers with the Wim Hof stuff and it's, I guess I, when I did hypoxic stuff, I didn't actually know what was going on. Um, so when you're doing hypoxic stuff, like I talked about before, we're increasing the CO2 in the yeah. body. Yeah. Um, now there's something called shallow water blackout yeah and that happens when the co2 goes so low um, and I mentioned before it's co2 that gives us the inclination to breathe so for people that are fit I suspect that there may be something not quite right for it to happen but um, yeah there, there, it can be dangerous in the water yeah so yeah all the techniques that i teach are dry techniques if you are doing this in the water it is essential that you have a buddy if you are doing wim hof or superventilation, you shouldn't go into the water until you feel um capable which is only a couple of minutes like it really changes that that blood oxygen gas ratio quite dramatically it makes the blood quite alkaline and it blows out a lot of the carbon dioxide which is which is acidic the gas Mm. is acidic Mm. Um, which makes the blood alkaline. But yeah, anyway, that sounds a little bit technical, but yeah. No, I mean, I appreciate it. Ease into it. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, we do a lot of underwater work, you know, obviously we're coming off our walls, we're coming off our, uh, through our breakouts, you know, to 15 meters and then through their races, you know, they're learning to, to stay underwater longer because it's more efficient and faster. Yep. But at the same time, when you're training that it, it can be, um, rather dangerous because, you know, there's a, there's obviously a point where you want to push the body to learn to stay under and learn to adapt and learn to deal with the pain a little bit but you never yep. know how far somebody can go with that. You know, everybody's yeah, a little bit different, you know? Yeah. Some people are so much better at it than others. And it's the way, you know, and, and you're, you're a, you're a sprinter, right? So you would have known that 
yeah. that push, that that CO2 buildup, and it's yeah. quite a stressful feeling. Um, yeah, so, so the breath hold stuff that I teach, the hypoxic, which is low oxygen, hypercapnic, which refers to high CO2, mm-hmm. the Wim Hof technique is hypoxic, low oxygen, and hypocapnic, which is low CO2. Okay. So they're, they're different techniques, if, if that makes sense. And again, it's getting a little bit technical. Can you build tolerances? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Yeah, I think that's ultimately what we're trying to do in the pool is build some tolerance to to the pain. But I, I, I did want to know that there was factual evidence to say that we can build a tolerance to it because I don't want to waste my time under there, you know? Yeah, no, there's, you know, and, and you talked about getting a couple of percent here and there. Like you're working with high-performance athletes. Yeah. Like I regularly see people, like one of the girls in my last course did a five-minute PB after doing a couple of weeks of breath work. Wow. Um, so if that was in a 20 minute paddle or a 25 minute paddle. So um, yeah, I'm seeing 20, 30, 40% improvement in mm. people's athletic wow. endeavors. So whilst I doubt you'd get that with um, your Olympic athletes, if you can get an improved recovery and, you know, maybe mm-hmm. a couple of percent here and a couple of percent there, it's your game is a game of seconds. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, hundreds of seconds, mate. You know, especially yeah. in my in my event, I'm look. I was look, I was always looking for that tenth. Just for, yeah. just find me a tenth, and I'll be happy. Um, right. I, I lost the Olympic uh, gold medal by two tenths, so a couple of tenths would have been really nice at that stage. Um, mate, looking back, you know, when we were kids, did you honestly think I was going to be an Olympic swimmer one day? Um, well, you were good. You were always very good, and and you're a sprinter, but. Um... There was there was some top athletes in that in the in the pool. There was a couple of Olympians. That was yeah. that was an impressive squad. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I guess yeah, I did. I think I, I thought you guys w- would go. Thanks, man. I appreciate that confidence you had in me. <laughs> I'm not sure if I saw it in myself at the time, but um, but I was always hungry for it. You know, I was just uh, that, that's just I just stuck at it. I guess I just didn't quit on on what I yeah. wanted. So I think that's the main the main goal, you know. But um, you've seen some life disappear on the beach. Have you ever had a situation where uh, a life has been born on the beach? Was there any birth on the beach? No, no births on the beach. I've talked about that. We've sort of waited waited for for that to happen. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, fortunately, fortunately not. Yeah, I would have thought that would have happened for sure down in Bondi with all the craziness going on down there. Yeah, we fortunately there's some hospitals pretty close, so yeah, yeah. Um, anything that there's medical support for us ten minutes away. So we just got to hold the fort for ten minutes until some um, more highly trained paramedics come. Well, listen, man, I appreciate your time. I know you're super busy. Uh, people can catch uh, some old episodes of Bondi Rescue, I'm sure, in America. It was on Netflix in the US a couple of years ago. And it was, um, yeah, I had all these Americans just frothing on it. Um, yeah. You know, there was like a thousand new Instagram followers every couple of days. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if it's still on the Netflix over there, but it was, um, yeah, it was cool. I'm going to track it down. I didn't fully realize that you're on it. So I'm going to track it down. Now. I've got some, I've got some extra time to watch some Netflix. So that'll be good. Yeah. Awesome. Hockey. <laughs> all right, Dino. Appreciate it, mate. Good to see you again. Uh, fit and healthy as ever. So uh, take care. All right, mate. All right, mate. See you, bud. Bye.